Welcome to Cardigan and Collar. I'm Maurice Lee, pastor of Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Abington, Pennsylvania. And I'm joined as always by my co-host, David Louie, professor of theology at the North American Lutheran Seminary centered in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. Today, we are continuing our series on catechesis. And this time we'll be doing things just a little bit differently. We've had some terrific guests on our podcast over the last few months, uh, Joel Scandrett, Alex Fogelman, Todd Haynes. And today, David and I want to spend just a little bit of time thinking about reviewing, uh, maybe extending, certainly uh, trying to go a little bit deeper into the things that we've been hearing and learning, discussing. Uh, particularly for the sake of thinking about catechesis uh, in the in our churches, uh, so that's our uh, that's kind of our trajectory, our our goal today. And uh, David, uh, when we were discussing this a couple of weeks ago, uh, David thought of a title for the episode. We don't usually don't have episode titles, but we uh, David thought of an episode title that I thought was worthy of uh, maybe making into a movie or something. Uh, but the title is The Lost World of Catechesis. And so that's what we're going to be starting with. Uh, and David, maybe you can give us just a little bit of orientation into what we're going to be talking about uh, as we discuss the lost world of catechesis. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably showing that when I was a kid, I was a big fan of the Michael Crichton books, Jurassic Park, <laughs> uh, subsequently Lost World that have now become movies and so forth. So probably that that's coming through a bit. But no, I mean, in all seriousness, I think it, it jumped to mind because when I was listening to our guests talk about practices of catechesis across the history of the church, it increasingly felt to me like what we were talking about wasn't just a practice, like a discrete thing that we're trying to recover, but that, that that practice is actually embedded in a whole ecosystem of sorts. I mean, a, a set of practices, assumptions, um, beliefs about the world. And um, I, I mean, I just, first of all, really enjoyed listening to um, how Christians in the early church thought about catechesis, how they approached it in all these multifaceted ways. But it just occurred to me that really we're, we're not talking about one discrete thing um, that we're trying to recover. We're actually trying to recover um, the larger context within which catechesis makes sense. And so Lost World is, is, uh, is my way of trying to express that point, that catechesis is one thread within a larger tapestry. And if you pull the thread from the tapestry, it actually no longer makes sense. And so I think that's part of the challenge and part of the, you know, part of the goal we have is to, is to um, more fully uh, recover that lost world of catechesis. When we were talking with Joel Scantoret, we uh, floated the imagery of like learning a language and, and entering into a culture. Uh, I'm particularly thinking of this idea of, of learning a language. I mean, that's very kind of, it's a popular thing to do. Uh, but you don't learn a language just to learn the language. Uh, you learn the language in order to enter into, you're, you're, going, you're visiting a, another country or you're, uh, or you're trying to, you're trying to read uh, texts that represent um, a whole, like as you're, to, to use your language, a world, or as we were talking about with, uh, with Joel, a culture. Um, a, a complex uh, tapestry, as you put it, an interweaving of, of, of all sorts of uh, dimensions of, of life and, and so forth. And uh, to, get, uh, to get an introduction to that, to get, in, to, to get uh, sort of um, an orientation and, and some, some ability to live into that, is, that's what catechesis is, is about, right? Right. And the language analogy is interesting because um, no, one, no one ever just arbitrarily learns a language, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I had a friend in college who was learning a fictional language. He was trying to learn Dwarvish or was it okay. Elvish? I can't remember. It was one of the Tolkien languages and, you know, right. people will learn Klingon. But even, even there, right, even in that somewhat strange um, example, 
there's a corpus, right? There's a body of literature. There's, there's something that is motivating the desire to learn that language. You want to be more conversant in navigating Tolkien's, you know, fictional world or something. But of course, usually in the more common instances, we, we learn languages because there's a culture that we want to be able to interface with. Um, there's a culture that we want to be able to, in some sense, um, join ourselves to and be able to navigate from the inside. And so I think that illustrates pretty well that if, if we can't answer that question in an analogous way for catechesis, like what, what is catechesis equipping us for? You know, what's, what's the reality? What's the, what's the culture or what's the, what's the corpus um, that catechesis is the entrance ticket to, um, to understanding or inhabiting or interfacing with, then in a sense, catechesis becomes a practice without a motivation or it, or it starts to feel very arbitrary. Um, and so that, again, that illustrates, I think, this, this idea that we had listening to our guests is that um, in the early church or in the Reformation or in the various time periods we were talking about, it seems like the church had that um, built-in sense of urgency. And, and it's interesting, you know, we're at a moment in time now where we experience catechesis as something we need to recover, right? We experience it as something that's been lost or something that has become, that is somehow atrophied or, or weakened. And um, paradoxically, though, to, to, to strengthen it or to recover it, you can't just strengthen, you know, you can't just strengthen catechesis per se. That would be sort of like saying, you know, that would be sort of like learning a language without a culture, right? You need, you need to somehow ask the question, what's, what's the larger, more encompassing reality um, to which catechesis is joined, um, that actually lends urgency to the task and, and explains um, why someone might be motivated to, um, to enter into it. Do you think we're faced with a situation where church life, Christian faith, and particularly the, the Christian faith that's lived in community, where that has uh, itself become just another option maybe, or kind of a, 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 only a compartment? of people's lives, not even a lifestyle choice, but just, I don't know, something you do on Sundays or, or whatever, without being this kind of encompassing mm-hmm. uh, world or culture that we live in as Christians. Do you think that's part of, and you know, we're, that's connected with the, uh, the encroachment of secularization in the world and so forth? Do you think that's contributed to the loss of uh, robust catechesis, practices of catechesis? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, I suppose it's tough to generalize, but it, it does, I wonder if, I wonder the extent to which um, the, the average churchgoer um, is cognizant of the fact that when they enter the church space, that they are actually crossing some kind of threshold, right? That, that they're, as when juxtaposed with, um, you know, con- a conventional way of thinking about the world that we sort of swim in, in our daily lives, that when we, that when we are gathered together um, into the body of Christ um, each week and throughout the week um, within the context of church, that we're actually entering into a space that stands to a very great extent um, in a dissonant relationship you know, to, to business as usual. And, um, I, I don't know, I, I guess that's a question I have. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about it because if there isn't that sense of, wow, this is a, this is a space that operates by a different logic or, mm-hmm. or this is a space, um, with practices that don't actually fit in the world as we are conventionally formed to navigate it. Um, there are things here that don't make sense. There are things that here that I actually need someone to help me understand what it is that we're saying and doing. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't have that sense at some level, it's not clear to me. It's not clear to me that catechesis will will feel like a necessary enterprise. 
So, so right. I mean, so, I mean, what do you think? Do you think, do you think the, the average churchgoer, I know I'm asking you to generalize it's, you know, and I'm sure it's different for, from, from church sure. to church and from person to person. But do you think, do you think we've lost a bit of that sense of, uh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not like a jarring, um, I, I don't know, a, a threshold that you cross that actually is a little bit, a little bit disorienting, like, whoa, there, there's mm-hmm. something different and new and distinctive happening here that I need to get acclimated to. Do, do you think that yeah. there's a sense yeah. of that? Oh, I think that's definitely the case. Uh, and uh, it's probably, I mean, I can imagine the, the causes of that and the kind of the ways that that's expressed being extremely diverse. But I think it is true that uh, in terms of uh, in, in terms of church, our life in the church and Christian faith as um, as as being uh, part of or as being kind of the, the way that you know the way that we that we live our lives uh, as this uh, worshiping community, um, we're we've gotten very used to either uh, uh, kind of reducing that to a pinpoint. Mm-hmm. A bit of just a just an hour on Sunday where we do our thing, or uh, we've tried to, in some sense, um, make it as uh, not different, as similar to the uh, the secular culture as possible in terms of um, trying to uh, talking talking about our uh, the our needs, our religious needs, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, making you know making worship as as similar to entertainment as possible those sorts of things I'm treading on uh, very sort of thin ice in terms of controversial topics here but I think that uh, the the dissensus or the difference that you're talking about this the this kind of idea or the um, the sensation of of entering a totally different world is that's been flattened out. Yeah, there's a kind of creative tension here, isn't there? I, on the one hand, the church is a missional community, and we are summoned by Christ to do everything that we can um, to reach out to our neighbors in such a way that we are not in any way um, needlessly alienating people from, you know, from the gospel. And so, and so there's a, there, there is a kind of imperative, I would say, to um, to make sure that we're not adding unnecessary turbulence for folks as they, as they might consider, um, you know, joining the church. And yet on the other hand, on the other hand, as you point out, there can be a risk that if there's no turbulence in a sense, we, that can be assigned to us that we've just blended into the culture to such an extent that that it doesn't seem really necessary. Catechesis no longer seems necessary because, you know, I'm getting by just fine. I don't, I don't really need someone to acclimate me to this space because there's nothing about this space that, that requires um, supplementary acclimation. Yeah, <laughs> um, that seems sure. to be a, 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 a just a, a tension that's probably just intrinsic um, to the kind of community that the church is called to be. Well, you've put your finger, of course, on a on a long-standing and and deep um, uh, point of of debate and contention um, in Christian thinking about mission. In to what sense, or to what degree, and in what ways is the is the gospel to be enculturated uh, in order to be understood at all, uh, and in order to provide some sort of open doorway for people to to come through, but it, you, what you're saying is, it seems to me absolutely true. Uh, I, there's no getting away from the fact that it is a doorway and it has to be walked through. I mean, it's not like you can just, uh, the, the, the gospel is not just a sort of a, an additional, oh, well, here's something, uh, here's something that's, ni- that's nice that you can put into your backpack of, uh, of mm-hmm. um, strategies for dealing with life uh, along with all the other things that you have going on. It's just not that way. And so uh, there's got to be, that tension that you're talking about. Yeah, there's a there's a great book by a New Testament scholar uh, named Kevin Rowe, and I hope I'm going to get the title right. I think it's called World Upside Down, and he he uh, he makes the case. I think he's he's writing on Luke Acts that the gospel is the kind of thing that really does, in a very real way, turn our lives upside down. And so, if there isn't 
if there isn't a sense of that that's actively cultivated and practiced um, in our midst, then then there's a risk that we've assimilated to a different culture um, than than the culture of of the kingdom of God. Um, and the reason for that, right, is that uh, the gospel makes claims about reality. It's not just well, here's here's another uh, fun thing that. Uh, that you that you might a piece of entertainment or or something that you might uh, be able to sort of pick and choose from in order to uh, to reach your own goals. It 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 says actually the real world and the real uh, the real universe is it, it takes such and such a form. It has it has this sort of relationship to God who really exists and so forth. Um, so that's part of that's that's a claim that we can't back down from. Right. I mean, it sounds like you're saying um, Christianity requires us to think about the structure of reality in a way that is intrinsically jarring when compared with sort of the status quo understanding of how the world works. It's just, it's, it's unavoidable. I mean, Paul in Colossians talks about how, I mean, he uses the language of when a person becomes a Christian, it's as if God himself reaches down and snatches us from the dominion of darkness is the language that Paul uses and Indeed. sort of rests us. I mean, it's very apocalyptic language, right? Kind of two, two domains, two, two, two realities. He plucks us from the one and he, he draws us into the other. And, um, and so long as we live in this earthly life, in a sense, the, the drama of the Christian life is lived out at the collision point, at the, at the dissonance between those competing ways of thinking about reality, right? The uh, one way of thinking about reality that is sort of baked into um, the cultural zeitgeist and the other far less visible, far more likely to be overlooked, a way that requires faith, um, a way that's hidden, and thus a way of thinking about reality to which we continually need to be reawakened. Um, that, and, and, and that catechesis seems to imply something like that. Like, why, why are we going to the trouble of sort of all of this repetition, all of this intentional pedagogy? It seems to presuppose, right? The reason we must do this is because it is so incredibly easy, um, for our understanding of reality to kind of veer back in the direction, right? Um, to a way of thinking about the world out of which Christ has redeemed us. And, and so we need practices of realignment, practices of, practices of catechesis, um, precisely because of that claim about, about reality. That's where the urgency of catechesis ultimately uh, comes from, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, and of course, analogies are dangerous, but if you're learning to drive, trying to, uh, become become a cook, mountain climbing. I mean, there are things that you have to you have to learn how to do, and they're not going to. It just doesn't doesn't come to someone who just walks onto the scene with with no training and and with sort of this um, you know folk idea of of how things work. Um, that's going to get dangerous really quickly. Yeah, um, that's that's certainly true. I was because there's a reality that is not just going to bend to your will. I was, um, I'm a bit of an amateur backpacker, um, very emphasis on amateur. And my brother-in-law and I have been kind of getting into this together. And, uh, over the Christmas break, I mentioned this to you when we were, when we were in Florida, but we, we, we did a, a sort of an excursion into the Florida Everglades. And, um, we learned after the fact that among among seasoned hikers, that section of trail is considered to be like some of the more demanding trail that exists in the continental U U.S. <laughs> that was definitely a tactical error on our part. But the reason I mention it is because it's very much true that um, when you engage in, you know, backpacking, you realize very quickly how much you don't know. Um, I mean, I grew up camping, you know, tent camping, car camping, or people call it glamping now, I think. Um, and, and that's one thing, right. But when, when you're sort of carrying your gear, there's, it's wet, it's sort of soggy, 
you get out there and boy, you just get humbled so quickly and you are just desperate to find somebody who can, who can help you, right? Who can help you figure out what you ought to be doing, what kind of gear you ought to have. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, your analogy of, you know, I forget the exact, the exact language you use, but there's a non-negotiable reality that you run up against. And when that happens, it's only when you sort of have that encounter with reality that mm-hmm. in a sense, um, the need for a pedagogy, the need for someone to mentor you, um, the need for some kind of orientation um, is just very acutely felt um, when, when you experience that. And so I suppose the question is like, what's the equivalent of that for the Christian life, right? Why, why is it that we were listening to Dr. Fogelman and in the early church, people just seemed to know that. Um, they, they just seem to know that if you were going to become a Christian, you need somebody to give you an orientation because this is, this is serious business. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, why is that? Do you think it's, do you think it's because of the very real threat of martyrdom in the early church or, 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 um, is it that we live in a world where Christianity has so thoroughly become part of the cultural furniture that we're, that we just sort of tend to think that we know what it's about and thus it doesn't seem alien and strange to us. I mean, what? Why is it um, that that we don't experience that kind of jolt of encounter with reality um, in, in in the church as much as we as we might? It is an interesting question, and i i don't have I don't have a a good enough grasp on what has been going on over the last you know three or four hundred years to um to to really you know, to really give a, a good picture of that. But it seems to me that you know, when you talk about the, uh, the way that um, early Christians, when they, when they came to faith, uh, one thing that was made clear very quickly was that um, Jesus is not simply, you know, not, not simply a kind of way that I can fulfill my own needs or uh, reach some sort of, um, you know, some sort of, uh, kind of nice, uh, nice spiritual goal for myself. But Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, which means that Caesar or whatever other uh, uh, forces or things out there that uh, thought yourself committed to, um, that those are not, and that therefore uh, this is this makes uh, th- this makes some the the same kind of demands on you that 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 walking into a reality that you're not familiar with and you're not trained for uh, makes on you. And it seems to me that we've, there, there's been a large, there, there has been a large scale movement to make Christianity and Christian faith a kind of um, a tool or an instrument for self-fulfillment, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, whatever kind of, fil- uh, if it, if it fills my needs, then, then that, that must be good or fit. I was thinking as you were talking about your camping illustration, right? You're out there in the wilderness and it's not going to do you any good to say, well, my truth is that, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm ready for this and I'm going to think positive. I mean, that just doesn't work. But, uh, but our, I think that's part of what has, uh, what, what, what Christian faith has become. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there was once a world and there still is a world in many parts of the globe today where to become a Christian is necessarily to sever allegiances with worldly powers that really do exercise, um, that really do exercise, um, authority over you. Right. I mean, in some cases it might be, it might be a family structure, right? The cost is just built in. If I do this, um, it will cost me something um, precious. And, um, and so it's interesting because in a sense, in a sense, um, no one had to, no one had to tell, you don't have to tell a Christian in that context, this is life or death. Hmm. You don't have to like conjure up enthusiasm or urgency. You don't have to, um, you know, you don't have to sort of do a revitalized PR campaign for like why, why catechesis might be something we might want to think about. And, um, you know, in our context, we're sort of in this in-between moment, it seems to me, because on the one hand, yes, it is true that um, Christianity is becoming 
more and more dislocated in some ways from um, from mainstream culture in the West. I mean, I, I think that's that's pretty obvious. Um, there's lots of signs of that. But, you know, we're still, I would say at least many of us, we're still a long way from really feeling in, in, a, in a day-to-day palpable manner um, the cost of affiliating with the church, right, in our, in our week-to-week lives. Now, I'm sure there's exceptions to that, so I, I'm, I'm generalizing. And so we're kind of on, we're sort of in this middle ground where perhaps because the pressures around us are starting to intensify, um, it's awakened us to the fact that our catechesis isn't up to the challenge. And yet we're not yet, um, or we're not currently at that point where there's a built-in dramatic cost, such as perhaps Christians in the early church experienced. And so that, that's kind of interesting, right? We're, we're awakened to the need yes. to recover the lost world. And yet, if I can, I don't know if this is, I hesitate to use this phrase, but, you know, the incentive structure surrounding <laughs> catechesis that sort of made it intelligible and made it seem like a common sense thing that, of course, you would have something like this. Um, we're not quite there. And so in a sense, I, I never put the pieces together quite like that before, but in a sense, that's really like the framing of our podcast season, right? I mean, that's the sure. reason why we thought, let's do a season on catechesis is because it seems like we all know we need something about our catechesis needs to change. Something about it needs to become more serious, uh, more intentional, more robust. Um, but, you know, we're in this awkward place where we have to convince ourselves and convince our churches, you know, how to do that and why we should do that. It's, it's, an, interesting, it's an interesting place, isn't it? It is. And I think when you talk about this in-between place, uh, it is, there's sort of the, you might think of, I think of the fumes of Christianity are still sort of, you know, we're surrounded by them and we're, mm-hmm. and we're kind of, we, we think we can, you know, we, we, we think we can sort of survive on that, on that kind of, you know, the, the momentum of, of, um, of hundreds of years of, of Christian faith. Uh, we're not, we're, we're not in that, uh, we're, we're not, we're not back in a situation. We're not yet back in a situation where, where we think, oh, I, I really need to, uh, I really need to, to learn or to, or to teach, uh, others, the, the, the truth about things, the reality of the world we're living in, um, we don't we don't feel the the um, the, the great the pressing the, the pressing urgency of that yet. That image of the fumes of Christianity, it, wow, that's got my mind firing in a few different directions. It it's almost like we're. I'm going to switch metaphors here. It's almost like we're inoculated to the strangeness of Christianity. You know what I mean? Like it, it feels like something familiar, even though, even though we may not actually, we, we've forgotten that we don't realize how strange it is. I mean, I'll give an example of this. I, um, when I was uh, in, in my PhD work at Marquette, which is a, a Roman Catholic institution, we would, we would teach all these undergraduates who, many of whom had grown up in the, in the Catholic parochial school system. And so, you know, by the time they were sitting in, you know, the theology class at Marquette. In some cases, they had had like, you know, 12 years of, of Catholic, um, Catholic school education. And um, as a consequence of that, they, many of them entered the class with a sense that like, I know what this is about. Like, I've, I've been in this my whole life, you know, and yet I would get these papers where I, I will, I'll never forget one in particular, a student turned in this paper where he said, he said, you know, the, the Roman Catholic view of the afterlife is that one day we will all live as disembodied spirits in an ethereal heaven in the presence of God. This guy had been through like 12 years of, of Catholic school. And I remember, you know, sitting down with him being like, you know, actually, like neither the Roman Catholic Church nor, nor really any Christian church, with a few exceptions, um, thinks that our, our eschatological future is, is to live as disembodied spirits, right? We, we confess you know, the resurrection of the dead, right? That we will, and, and I, so anyway, I, I'm getting a little bit off track here, but my point is to say, I think that's, yeah. my point is to say that um, that's an added challenge, right? Because we, we live constantly sort of 
among the vapors of Christianity. <laughs> you know, the, yes. what, what did you, what was the language? Not vapors. What did yeah. you say? The, the fumes, fumes. Yeah. the fumes right. of Christianity, right? So we think, <laughs> oh yeah, Christianity, I, I know what that's about, right? Like I've been, I've been going to mass my whole life or, or maybe you know, I was baptized and I was confirmed. I, and yet it's possible to, to sort of be around Christianity your whole life and for it to become a sort of background noise that, that never really allows you to contemplate the fact of just how strange um, the message of Christianity is as compared with our broader culture. That, that's, a, that's an interesting challenge for catechesis as well, it seems to me. I think you're right. And I, I think that uh, sort of not only this idea of, you know, our eschatological destiny is to go off to a disembodied heaven when we die, but all sorts of other things are kind of this, there's this pastiche of cliches that often, that often come. I just uh, did a funeral yesterday. And uh, although since, you know, I can, I can choose what to, what to say and, and what happens at this funeral, well, we didn't talk about the uh, uh, going to heaven, uh, disembodied and, and all that kind of stuff when we die. But, uh, I've been to a, done enough funerals to know that that's kind of, you know, uh, that's what, that is, that is what is said often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just that, the, and, and that's, a in, and if you drill down and try to, and, and try to kind of interrogate someone, what, what do you mean when you, when you say something like that? Uh, you'd get to, you know, you'd hit a wall very quickly. And that's why I call them cliches. I mean, there are these kinds of these phrases and other kind of, you know, easy, um, easy containers uh, for, uh, for our thought that we're, that we're used to deploying and and that we're used to hearing. And I think um, much of our, uh, much of our Christianity is effectively sort of driven by those. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, the question this raises for me that I'd, I'd like to hear you hear, think about with you at least is, um, you know, as I think about this, there's a certain temptation. It, this is something we talked about with, with Alex Fogelman. And it's the question of like, um, is there a risk in this conversation that um, in making the process of becoming a Christian too hard? Um, I mean, one way to, one way to take our conversation so far, and I don't think either of us has intended this, but would be to say like, um, you know, the problem is we've just been so, we've just been so easy on folks. We need to, we need to somehow put up more walls, more barriers, more, we we need to make this threshold between world and church, um, more jarring, more dissonant. Um, and I think there's a danger there, right? Because I, I don't, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to think about the strengthening of catechesis in the church as a way of um, making Christianity harder for people. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Right. And so, yep. how, how do how do you think we we could we could sort of um, think about this? And on the one hand, we do want um, the people in our churches, and we want for ourselves to to really lean into the fact that the Christian faith is this beautiful way of thinking about the world, beautiful way of inhabiting reality, but that it, it doesn't come naturally to us. Like we need to mm-hmm. be formed in it. That, that to me is what we're trying to say, but how do you do that right. without in a sense, just like layering in more demands on pastors, on churches, on converts? Um, right. Help, help me think about that. Yeah. And that's a, I mean, it's a very, it seems to me to be a live issue. Um, although, and You'll you'll agree with me on this, of course. I mean, the, it's not it's not the purpose. It's not the the point to make Christianity hard. I mean, that's not right. You know, that's not the goal of what we're trying to do. Uh, it, but to uh, to introduce to and to and to offer um, this picture of reality and a and a culture that that is embedded in a reality that's so different um, from the way that the you know, the dominant secular culture uh, thinks of things, that's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to, it's going to be forbidding in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, there's, I, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of ways that we can, that we can not, that we can sort of, um, that to, to use that uh, 
image I was using before of the open door of, of, of saying something like or, or of trying to make the argument and, and slowly getting people to, uh, to open um, their hearts and minds to, um, to, to thinking, at least thinking about a claim like, this is what human beings are really meant for. This is what you were, this is what you were designed for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, it's not something that you have to, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not something that is, um, is so completely antithetical mm-hmm. to who you are as a human being that you have to just, um, you have to just cast aside, uh, everything that you thought, um, was, you know, uh, was, was true and good and beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I, I wonder if that. We, we were playing with the idea of the sort of uh, the hard edges of reality um, earlier, you know, like re, when, when you bump into reality and reality sort of pushes back against your agency, we typically don't experience that as reality being mean to us. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, um, sure. It, <laughs> um, you know, I, I didn't experience the Florida wilderness as like uh as being mean. This is so me. unfair that right. I have, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that I have um, to carry my uh, food in my backpack and slog through the marshes or whatever. And, and neither do you typically encounter people in those environments um, that, 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 that sort of give the impression of having been coerced uh, to be there. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, there's, there's sort of a, a beauty to the reality that you're interacting with as a naturalist or whatever word you would want to assign, you know, to all the folks who find themselves in that kind of a space, there's a sort of intrinsic beauty to the reality. It's just, it's just magnetic, right? You, you, it's, it's just obvious, you know, that for anyone that's um, experienced it and, and the process of like, you know, the process of, of ordering your, your behavior in, in accordance with that reality doesn't feel like someone is singling you out or persecuting you. It's just, well, yeah, I mean, this is what the reality, this is what the reality requires. <laughs> if you're going right, to, right. It's not, if right. you're going to interface with it meaningfully at all, um, you're going to have to reckon with the kind of reality that it is. Um, it's not like there's someone deliberately trying to make it hard for you. Right. Just because, and, they, just because they don't like you or something. And, and so maybe, maybe there's a, you know, bringing it back to catechesis, maybe there's a kind of postural issue here, right? If, if we're just going out there trying to make life harder for people, um, that would be, that would, I think, actually be perverse, right? That, that's, that's utterly, right. utterly contrary um, uh, to, to the way our Lord has, has commanded us to, to, to engage with our neighbors and to, to reach out in mission. Um, but in the process of just describing the strange world to which the gospel introduces us, right? The strange world to which Christ, with which Christ confronts us. Um, if we're doing that patiently and well, um, transparently, if we're preaching the scriptures um, faithfully, that that beautiful reality will assert itself in a way that will hopefully um, create a sense for our need to be reordered in relation to it, right? It's not, um, and, and so I, I don't know. I, I I don't I don't have a grand conclusion to that. I'm, I was just sort of thinking about how the reality itself needs to be doing the work. It, it can't be yeah, that's a true. desire to just make things harder. There somehow right, it has to be right. moored to this is just the Christian faith, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful mm-hmm. vision. It's a beautiful understanding of reality, um, but right. to engage with it honestly, is to find yourself in need of being formed. Um, that's just, that's just the kind of reality that it is. And neither, neither would it be right then to, uh, to downplay or, uh, to try to dilute the hard edges, right? I mean, you, you, when you're, if you're trying to tell someone why camping is such a, or backpacking or whatever is such a great thing. I mean, you don't, uh, you don't um, you know, say, well, actually, there's no mosquitoes, and um, it's not really cold out there. I, that yeah, it's not gonna that's not gonna be helpful. Um, but you can talk about as you as you've put it, the beauty and the just the the draw of that. And I think, of course, the analogy breaks down because not everyone needs to go camping, um, right? 
but uh, the the what what the gospel offers to us is not simply a kind of oh well you know this is going to be really hard, um, but this is what this is what you were meant for as a human being. Yeah, I, I mean, think about Jesus' parable of the treasure hidden in the field. Um, Jesus seems to be saying, I mean, this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Selling everything you have so as to possess that field isn't like a command that's being inflicted upon you, right? It's it's just the same thing you do if you know yeah. that there's that treasure in the field that's worth mm. far more than anything else that you have, right? It's yeah. Jesus yeah. isn't saying, you know, to be my disciple, you have to prove your commitment by sort of willfully foregoing all of the really good stuff in life. Mm. Um what he's, what the logic is, there's a treasure in the field. And if you actually have some apprehension of what that treasure is and what it represents, um, then you will actually think nothing of, of, of selling everything you have so that you might possess that field. And um, so again, what's the logic, therefore, it's, it's, it's reality dependent. Everything depends upon whether that treasure really is what Jesus is telling us it is. Um, if it's not, well, then, yeah, it would just be a form of meanness to tell someone to sell all their stuff and make all these sacrifices for no reason. Um, but if, in fact, that treasure is what Jesus says it is, then it's, um, it's not a form of meanness. It's just, it's just a sane response to the, to the pertinent reality at hand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to go back to what we were worrying a little bit about before, does is this uh, does this just add something to the the work of the pastor or to the to work of the congregation or to ordinary Christian? And I think, in a sense, uh, what we do as uh, as Christians in our worship and our fellowship and our serving, I mean, um, those those are the kinds of things that are showing what the um, the, the the value of the treasure, put mm-hmm. it that way. The, the what the um, you know what the beauty and the the truth and the goodness of of the kingdom of God really are. So it's not something additional, right? Of course, uh, evangelism is yeah. We've got committees for that, and we've got ways in which we're we're thinking about doing that. And mm-hmm. in, in the twenty first century, great, but. Uh, for for pastors and for congregations alike, it seems to me that the um, the things that we're doing already, mm-hmm. uh, if we're doing them in public, because that's what we that's what we should be doing. If we're doing them in public, then uh, those are uh, those are kind of um, opening the door. Yeah, that that's really a, a great point. It's not it's not additive. I mean, there's a there's a great line. One of my favorite um, contemporary Lutheran writers, well, I guess he's, he's passed away, so it's not contemporary, but 20th century is the, the Swedish bishop, Bo Geertz. And he, in one of his books, The Shepherd's Letter, he offers this very compelling um, definition of what a saint is. And he says the saints, the true saints are not the, the extraordinary people that, are, that typically attract our fascination, right? The true saints are typically people who have committed to what outwardly look like very ordinary lives of service. You know, I think he even uses the language of their hands are calloused. They don't think of themselves as saintly. You know, when they look in the mirror, they don't, they don't see a a saintly person. And yet this is the line that I really love. He says, he basically, he says to, to be in the presence of these kinds of people, um, it is to, is to be in an environment where it is impossible to doubt that God is real, right? That there, that the trajectory mm-hmm. of that person's life, the the trajectory of costly service to others, it actually doesn't make sense unless God is real. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, um, this is probably an important point to make, lest our conversation be construed as a way of criticizing the church, which again is, I don't think either of our intention. In my limited experience, our churches are filled with people like that. Um, people who outwardly, you really have no idea what's going on under the surface. But if you have the privilege of getting to know that person, 
you start to realize that actually the whole trajectory of their life, the whole trajectory of their life choices and the way they've invested their time and their talents um, speaks to the reality of God. <laughs> and so I wonder if, I wonder if one takeaway from this is to, is not to say, Hey, how can we add all kinds of extra sort of um, challenges to becoming Christian or how can we kind of recapture something of the urgency of the first century or, or, you know, or, or, or whatever, but it's actually to say, how can we find ways to make visible, you know, in non, you know, we don't want to make this, uh, you know, we don't want to embrace a culture of exhibitionism or something like that, sure. but how do we, sure. right. how do we kind of honor, find ways to honor and, and make visible, um, lives that really are conformed to the reality of God in our midst. Because there, there, there's something about those embodied lives of witness that, 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 that sort of makes, I keep using the phrase makes visible, it makes visible that lost world to us for just a few moments. Sure. It's like, wow, if right. it, it, it's concrete, it's, it's, it's taking up space in the world, to use a phrase from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So that, that strikes me as one possible takeaway. How do, we make, how do we find ways to make visible the reality of God in our midst now? Um, in the, in the place that the Lord has, has, has put us. And it seems to me to bring the, again, to bring the conversation around to catechesis, that catechesis is, uh, uh, one aspect of, uh, of our doing that, of, of, um, of contributing and to and nurturing lives that, uh, that display that sort of, um, God and transmit and God, um, you know, God-filledness that you've been talking about. Um, as you were talking about Geertz's words, I was thinking about a much less Lutheran author, Albert Camus, who in The Plague describes um, uh, this, uh, what, you know, one of the characters uh, is, all, all he does, he just, he's homebound, he just sits in the bed, you may remember this, and uh, he moves chickpeas from one pan to another. And, and one of the other characters, Taru, uh, looks at him and and asks, "Is he a saint?" Sort of out of the blue, the question comes. But then Taru answers the question for himself. Yes, if saintliness is an is a collection, is a is a um, uh, is a um, a group, an arrangement of habits. Mm. Now Taru is in no sense a believer, but I think that in what we're, uh, I think there is something true about this that. That the that the Christian life uh, oriented toward God is um, a kind of a pattern of uh, of things that are done, things that are thought, things that are um, spoken of uh, that are not. You know, you don't have to kind of um, uh, you don't have to uh, sort of derive them from first principles every time. They have become ingrained in sort of the way the way you live in your calloused hands and so forth. But those have to be learned, right? Right. They they don't come naturally. In a sense, it sounds like what we're gesturing towards here is, um, in a sense, encouraging a closer connection between Lutheran catechesis and a Lutheran doctrine of vocation. Because I mean, the, when I when I start thinking about when I start thinking about lives of um, sort of durable faithfulness to God's calling, right? I mm we're, we're shading into the direction of a doctrine of vocation when you speak in those sure. terms. And, right. but I, I don't know that I've ever thought about vocation intentionally in relation to catechesis. Um, but it, it strikes me that if, if our premise, and that's sort of the premise of this episode, the lost world of catechesis is that in order for catechesis to make sense, you actually need to think about the world in a certain way, right? You need, you need to think about reality as something that actually, um, requires that we be formed. Um, it, it requires a sort of ongoing acute awareness of the fact that we are as, as spiritual beings constantly in danger of being turned off course. Um, that the reality to which Christianity introduces us is a reality that is presently hidden and thus requires, um, it's not something that comes naturally to us, right? All of those things um, mean that what we really need, 
perhaps more than theoretical principles, is lived performances, lived enactments of what it, you know, what it looks like to live a life in accordance with the reality of God. And, and that's vocation. I mean, vocation isn't the only form it takes. Um, sure. Clearly martyrdom is another one, but sometimes we may, if we only turn our attention to the exotic and to the extraordinary, right, to, right. to, to the heroic stories of the early church, um, we're, we're probably missing opportunities right in front of us um, that to, to make more visible that reality and the way that it sort of shows up in, in daily life. So that suggests that catechesis, uh, sort of conceived of in in its fullest senses, is more. I mean, it can't it can't uh, sort of simply throw overboard the kind of the nuts and bolts of learning the creed or or um, or, or reading the Bible or or learning about um, the doctrine of the Trinity, whatever. Uh, those things are those things are important, but they're not all that catechesis. I mean, this kind of transfer of information is not all that catechesis uh, involves. Um, right. I mean, it's it's the grammar, and grammar is indispensable. If you don't if you don't know how to speak the language, you're not going to get very far in a culture. But like we were saying before, if you have the language but you don't have the culture, you'll pretty soon forget why you went to all the trouble to learn the language in the first place. Right. If there's not a culture to which it's joined. Um, does that give us some sense of what concretely can be done to renew catechesis and to and and to uh, give it a um, bring it more into the open, make it something that is um, is is thought about kind of more uh, intentionally and and faithfully mm -hmm. uh, in our churches. I mean, well, of course, we're, that's what we're going to be talking with people about our guests in our, uh, additional guests in the future on the season of the podcast. Right. Yeah, we'll be sort of tilting our attention more in the direction of practitioners moving forward, folks who are, you know, thinking, thinking about these questions in ways that will, be, I'm sure, be very helpful for us. I mean, I'll just, I mean, I'd be very curious to hear what you think, but I'll just build off of what we were just discussing. If, in fact... If in fact one way to make the lost world of catechesis visible is to lean a bit more into uh, the direction of vocation, I wonder if uh, one way to do that is to somehow incorporate something like um, testimonies from the congregation within the curriculum of catechesis. Um, that is to say, and I'm actually I hadn't made this connection until just now. Uh, the pastor at our current parish does this, right? He he brings in um, seasoned Christians from the congregation to basically provide a sense of their life story and how following Christ has taken shape in their life, and and in a sense why, um, you know, why it's worth it, so to speak. And uh, I have to imagine that that that's effective for giving the uh, the confirmands or the catechumens an imagination for why we're engaging in catechesis because this actually is an orientation to the Christian faith that will make a difference. It's in a sense it is a matter of life and death, um, though it may not play itself out in the form of martyrdom specifically. It is a matter of how you invest your time, um, how you think about your life's journey, and so forth. So so that's one idea that jumps to mind is again that merging of catechesis and vocation, and that might take shape in the form of something like intentionally calling upon members of the congregation to bear witness in some fashion, so as to provide a context within which catechesis uh, makes sense. How about, how about you? What, 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 is, is, what well, do you think? Well, let me ask, let me, let me uh, sort of further that a little bit. Is there an analogy there to the fascination within some Christian traditions of lifting up the lives of saints? Mm. Uh, as a way of uh, as a way of providing kind of these touch points or or just um, uh, at the very least examples of what of the way Christian life is is to be lived out in the in the real world. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I had 
maybe I should have. I had never quite thought of the, you know, feast days and commemorations of saints and heroes of the faith that we include in our church year. I had never necessarily thought about those as means through which we kind of uh, provide a context for catechesis. Um, and of course, that's not all that those things do. Sure. But it, sure. Do, it, does, it does seem to me that that, 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 is, that is part of the rationale that we, that we need to perhaps recover. Um, there may be something a little bit more, I don't know how to put it, uh, immediate or I don't know to use the, you know, to use the, the psychological, the psychological language relatable about someone who's actually in the congregation alive, well, um, struggling, right. uh, of course, also to, to live out Christian life. Yeah. There may be something that's more, you know, sort of, uh, more immediate about that. But in yeah. any case, we also have this communion of saints that we can, uh, that we're, of course, part of, but also that we can th- sort of um, think about and draw. Well, and I mean, just the the fact the fact that so much of our Bible is narrative um, seems significant here as well, right? I mean, right, right. Yeah, I, you know, I teach theological ethics, and there's a bad habit Christian ethicists sometimes have that you know, okay, this is an ethics class. Let's let's find all the commands. You know, let's let's just sort of. Right. Let's just, you know, compile a list of all the commands and that's the substance of Christian ethics. And of course the commands are very important, but um, the narratives, I mean, you, you, when you talk about what actually forms a person, what actually opens a person up to a new way of imagining mm-hmm. the world, um, there is something very powerful about narrative that, that um, opens up the imagination in a way that a command just can't. Um, mm-hmm. And so... It's not just the lives of saints, in other words. It's there, there's something near, you know, there was a movement in, in theology a couple of decades ago, um, you know, narrative theology. It's still going on. And, right. um, and it was very much kind of leaning into this idea that ultimately, right. you know, narrative is such a powerful vehicle of, of theological, moral, catechetical formation. And, and there's something to that, right? I wouldn't want to reduce Christianity to nothing but narrative, but, uh, but there right. is clearly right. something, something there. How about you? What, would, what do you think is something yeah, that well, we might, might help with this? I would want to continue to push uh, worship, the ways that we worship and the uh, the liturgies with which we worship, particularly in our, uh, you know, in this in this Lutheran context that we um, both come from, but uh, but in other uh, in other ways as well, as a as an aspect mm-hmm. of. Uh, our training and familiarizing and forming people uh, in this uh, God-saturated and God-oriented reality mm-hmm. that we actually live in and that we're that we're meant to that we're created uh, to live in. So worship, of course, speaking about uh, our kind of typical word and sacrament worship on on Sunday mornings, but also prayer and uh, other other opportunities to to come together uh, in in community in believing community to uh, to to have our um, to have our minds and our hearts uh, formed by the Word of God that comes from outside of us and that um, and and that and that brings us into this new world by the uh, by the sacraments in which we uh, in which we encounter uh, they, they, the person of Jesus himself as a, as a living reality and as our Lord and as the one who uh, makes us part of his body. I think that uh, we would do well to think of our worship as um, an integral aspect uh, of our catechesis, of our sort of enculturation into this, uh, into this very different world. Do you, do you think, I, I mean, I think that's very an interesting and, and really um, intriguing, intriguing um, angle from which to come at this. It, it raises a question for me, and that is, do you think there's something additional um, that, that can or ought be done to sort of guard against the tendency I've, I've often reflected about, even in my own life, that um, 
for 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 the liturgies and for the for the scripture readings to so easily become background noise to us. I mean, I've often found myself contemplating like if we really slowed down and contemplated what it is that we're saying, what it is that is being said to us um, within the context of a liturgical service, I mean, it's almost too much to take in. It's, 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 it is, it is, um, it is completely overwhelming, um, theologically and, and, and otherwise spiritually. And yet human beings, myself included, much to my shame, seem to have this capacity, right. To, to go through all that week after week (laughs) after week. And, um, somehow not to notice, like, you know, your, your pulse never quickens, your, your, um, you never sure. feel a rush of excitement or thrill. You never feel, you just, it's, it's, it's remarkable to me. And so, and so the question I'm, I'm asking such a long-winded question here, but I guess, is there something in addition just to doing our thing that that's helpful for just being like, Hey, you know, pay attention here. This is radical stuff. Or, or do you just sort of let the words do their work and it's not up to us to try to manipulate, you know, responses. I mean, how do you think about that? Well, I think there are ways to, uh, I mean, and so I think, uh, to, to start with worship, of course, is not, uh, it's not something that is for me and for, uh, for my own gain. Uh, I'm not intended to get something out of worship. Um, Right in worship, my my attention, my my heart, my eyes are directed toward uh, the Lord of the Universe. So uh, I wouldn't want to become. I wouldn't want worship itself, the the kind of the practice of worship itself, to become sort of this um, place where we uh, where we try to um, kind of get on this meta level and and ask, oh, what what's what's going on here, and, mm-hmm. and let me think about this. But I think there are opportunities. In other contexts, mm. to um, uh, to to bring up those questions, um, and to and to and to go deeper, um, and to ask, indeed, how are you know what is this what is this doing to us? That's not the purpose of worship, but it's it's something that there is something that's happening to us, and and we can talk about that. I think about the way that, of course, many many of us are. We just have the Lord's Prayer memorized. Um, and and of course it's easy as you point out to just to just say it and to and to let the words sort of wash over without with no with no real kind of sense of there's something really amazing going on here as we you know uh, as we're as we're drawn into the presence of god saying this prayer but uh there are other opportunities i think or at least we should as as church um pursue other opportunities to uh to sit people down or to or to talk with them uh in in various in various places and in various circumstances about what is being said here what's going on and so forth i think of um the you know what what alex said uh about the about the way that um certain you know certain parts of the liturgy were uh were were forbidden to to catechumens or to, to non, to non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, because of their deeper meaning and the Lord's prayer is one of those, um, you know, we can't say our father unless we are ourselves have been, uh, have become uh, children of God by baptism. And that's something that can be, you know, we can, we can find, or at least I would hope we can find opportunities to kind of think about that a little bit further. Alex also talked about how oftentimes in the early church, there was a certain level, a certain comfort level with just getting people, getting, you know, getting used to the practices of the Christian life. And it was sort of, the, the attitude was sort of like, we'll explain all this stuff later, but just like right now, here's what we want you to do. You know? um, which I mean, has its, it has <laughs> right. its risks. I mean, I'm not, I sure. mean, it has its risks for sure. But liturgy sometimes if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying we shouldn't intrude upon the liturgy with all of these sort of extraneous explanations or like to try to get people to really mean it. But there is something to, something to be said for, okay, we've been baking in the liturgy, we've been marinating in the liturgy. And now like, hey, why, why do you think we cry out for mercy every week from our knees? 
Like why, you know what I mean? Getting people to pause, not necessarily as you're doing that, but, sure, but in sure. a subsequent right. moment, maybe in a Sunday school right. class or, 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 right. or, or, or a small group, that can be very, very powerful because without realizing it, we've been, you know, we've been sort of conformed by the habit of asking God for mercy. And then after the mm-hmm. fact, we're asking, hey, hey, why is it that we do that? Um, right. That does seem important because if you don't have that subsequent point of contact, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think it's possible for a person to go to church for 50 years and say the Kyrie every single week and never actually pause to ask, why, why do we do this? I mean, it, it, yeah, it happens. Yeah, I think it is possible. Sure, sure. Um, right. So, well, Maurice, we are, we're past an hour, um, according really? to our oh, yeah. fearless producer. Well, okay. So don't you think the listeners who have made it here deserve some kind of merit badge or, I don't know, when I was a kid, Sunday Absolutely. school attendance, you would get like these, uh, these pins that you would, you would display proudly each week. Um, so I don't know if, if you're still with us, you, you have my respect. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Sorry, we don't have merit badges for you. Maybe we should make that part of the cardigan and collar swag. We'll add it to we'll the to bring it line up item in the budget. Well, for those of you who have been listening and who have stayed with us, thank you for your uh, for your attention and for your participation in this way in our conversation. We appreciate your being part of our listening audience. And if you have enjoyed our time, we ask that you would subscribe or like so that we can continue to uh, make this podcast and the ideas that we are uh, that that we are developing and and nurturing and discussing here. Uh, available to a wider audience. We will continue to be talking about catechesis uh, with uh, colleagues, scholars, pastors, uh, and in the future, um, we're continuing to, I don't know uh, exactly how long this season will last, but it will it will be at least uh, three or four more episodes. And so we're looking forward to those conversations. Thank you again for listening and join us next time as we continue uh, in our conversations um, for, the, for the sake of pastoral ministry. Cardigan and Collar is a podcast of the North American Lutheran Seminary, which exists to form pastors and leaders for the North American Lutheran Church. Cardigan and Collar is hosted by Dr. David Louie and the Reverend Dr. Maurice Lee. Our producer is Stephen Neaton, and our theme music was performed and recorded by Mary Van Hooser. For more information about the North American Lutheran Seminary, visit www.thenals.org.